Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast for January 2022. My name is Tiffany Hodges from University Hospitals Case Western Reserve University of Cleveland, Ohio, and I will be serving as the moderator today for this discussion. We are very excited to highlight an article from the recent neurosurgery journal series entitled Deep Learning for Outcome Prediction in Neurosurgery, a Systematic Review of Design, Reporting, and Reproducibility. I'm so happy to welcome the lead authors of the manuscript, Dr. Sandy Lamb and Dr. Michael DeCypher. Dr. Sandy Lamb is Chief of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Lurie Children's Hospital, Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Lamb. Thank you very much. Also, we have Dr. Michael DeCypher, who's Assistant Professor of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Lurie Children's Hospital, Chicago. Welcome, Dr. DeCypher. Thanks very much. We'd also like to welcome our guest faculty today. We have Dr. Timothy Smith, who is Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Computational Neuroscience Outcomes Center in the Department of Neurosurgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thanks. Great to be here. I would also like to welcome our CNS resident fellow, Lakaj Dagobati, who will be discussing the paper as well as asking questions. Thank you for having me. Before we start the discussion, I would like to remind our listeners that if you would like to purchase the CME version of the podcast, please visit the educational catalog at cns.org. Dr. DeCypher, would you mind giving a brief summary of the manuscript and your inspiration behind the paper? So this is a systematic review of deep learning methodologies in neurosurgery with a focus on outcomes. And we did a database search of various uh, um, websites for for literature and neurosurgery uh and we basically excluded all uh papers that did not specifically uh report outcomes uh with machine learning and deep learning specifically um and what we found was not terribly surprising but that there uh are uh sites that are performing uh deep learning to model uh outcomes in neurosurgery uh and um, ultimately, uh, we found that there was quite a bit of bias, uh, which is inherent to the way some of these studies were performed. Um, and there were some issues with reproducibility. Um, at the end of the day, this is a uh, very sort of nascent uh, idea in the realm of neurosurgery specifically. And uh, it really depends a lot on the quality of the data uh, that's input into the uh, deep learning models. Um, but it does show that um, we're making some progress and we're developing databases and collaborations uh, in an effort to improve uh, the output uh, of these models moving forward. Thank you so much. I now like to turn this over to Dr. Smith if he has questions for the authors and open, up, open it up for discussion. Thanks so much. So for, first of all, let me say it's such a privilege to be here with you, Dr. Lamb, and to know that Lurie Childers is in such great hands for leadership is fantastic for me, having been an, uh, a resident in, in training there uh, a while ago. So it's great to talk to you. You know, I want to start by just asking you in general, from a very sort of a, you know, as a leader in the field, um, what do you see? I mean, having reviewed all of these papers about prediction modeling from an algorithmic culture. What do you see as some of the most important clinical areas to target for application for this type of work? 
Thank you so much. Um, it, it, it's really a, a, a pleasure and an honor to be here um, and, and to talk to um, you uh, about um, data and, and really data science and, and where we can go together um, in this field. So I, it, it really is, um, uh, it, it's very attractive, right? To feel like, you know, we have learned neurosurgery. So, you know, why, why can't machines and computers learn neurosurgery and learn to process data in the way that we do, right? So, um, so looking at risk stratification, um, looking at outcomes and looking at imaging uh, can, are, are areas that, that seem very uh, attractive in terms of, and intuitive in terms of how we process data and we can arrive in general with, with some rubrics for, for certain types of output. So that, that would mean that we need to be able to trust the data and that we would all be able to agree that the data that we're looking at is actually are the inputs that are relevant and the inputs that we would care about when we look at patients or look at scans. Um, but we should be able to train our trainees and train um, computers to be able to arrive at the conclusions or, or the most likely outputs uh, that, that we come up with as humans. So that the, the importance of kind of owning the data and, and really um, devising what's important to, to be inputs and, and, and coming up with that as, as a neurosurgical field is really important and having increasing transparency and, and agreeing on relevance and clinical relevance to not only ourselves as the clinicians and the researchers, but also the outcomes that matter to patients. Very good. You know, just to play the devil's advocate for a second, when you consider natural intelligence versus artificial intelligence, and let's just assume for a minute that we're talking about AI, even though we know really we're not, but what would you say to a person that says, well, historically, you only find what you're looking for. So what about, Dr. Lamb, the discovery process of the application of machine learning for machines with computational capacity that far exceeds any single human mind or collection of minds? What about that as a tool for discovery uh, about things that you know, we traditionally maybe wouldn't consider as important predictors for our patient outcomes? Thank you. I, I love that question uh, because that is kind of the promise of the future, right? That, um, that computing power and, and capability is really um, just advancing in, in leaps and bounds and, and should be able to do things that we didn't think possible before. Um, so I guess then there's a question of validation and then there's a question of trust, right? And then how do you help um, how do you help avoid the, the garbage in, garbage out uh, type of concept? And how do we all say, okay, this is, this is where we're going and, and these outputs are, are what we are going to put our, our patients' um, uh, risk prediction or, or predicted outcomes uh, and, and put that trust into there, right? Because it, you know, ultimately you know, this can move towards personalized medicine and, and it really can help people, but it may, um, it, it may be 
not helpful uh, and, and may be harmful. So how do we as stewards of the research and stewards of trying to figure out the, the place uh, of this type of um, deep learning and understanding that there are hidden layers in the analysis, how, how do we come up with, uh, with the, the right thing to do altogether? Yeah, which kind of brings me to, I think, an important topic, which is, you know, after reviewing all of this, what do you see as some of the major, let's say, limitations conceptually about the use of deep learning or machine learning in healthcare? So there, there's a few major limitations, um, especially relevant to neurosurgery. So in healthcare, when you think about the, the, the diseases that, that are epidemiologically um, having the um, uh, affecting more of the population, it, it, is, it, it is not brain tumors, right? So, so we are uh, limited um, in terms of the, the patient numbers. We're also limited in terms of the, the data sets uh, and um, uh, publicly available uh, data sets that we're, we're all able to use, uh, and then having transparency and reproducibility. Um, so really sharing uh, the data, sharing, and then eventually sharing the code and sharing the final models is very important. Um, but then when you think about um, uh, something like stroke, the, the, it, the potential for impact is, is huge. So um, there, there are limitations, but there are um, a, a lot of exciting applications as well. So really uh, reproducibility, we need to work on all together and then assessing bias, we need to work on together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the, you know, you've highlighted in the paper, I think very nicely, the issues surrounding, first of all, finding data. And then once you find the data, how we use the data, how we report the data, and then of course, how we validate these models, because we certainly don't want to get to the place where we have proprietary algorithmic models that no one can see through. That this is not the recipe probably for improving outcomes in general. Um, just one more question for you, Dr. Lamb, then I'll turn it over to Dr. Digabati. Um, from an ethical perspective, do you have any reservations about, let's say, increasing application across the board of machine learning techniques as it relates to neurosurgical patient care? That is a very complex question, Dr. Smith. Um, I, I think as long as we are very careful about the responsibility uh, of of evaluating this and uh, really careful about validating uh, and, and really keeping each other honest as we try to move the field forward, I think it's the right thing to do. Um, but I don't think it would be right for people just to say, well, I wanna get an extra paper out of this. Uh, we, we really need to be able to be good stewards uh, and really be good colleagues to be able to work together to say, how are we going to do this so that we can help people uh, and really prevent harm? 
So, but when you think about the, the computing power, when you think about the, the, the human limitations of time, and then really the pandemic has highlighted the limitations of people, of workforce, uh, this really can help transform healthcare to be able to make healthcare more accessible and, and really help us use limited resource um, and, and really think about how to, to help more people. Yeah, very good. I, I agree. I think a lot of folks do highlight the issue with patient data, who owns the data, who has access to the data, to transparency, anonymity of the data, uh, because more and more of our lives are now essentially being transferred into data clouds. And uh, so that, you know, there's a huge risk, theoretically, with um, data exposure on the part of patients. So thank you so much. I think very thoughtful answers. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lamb. That was great. And Dr. Smith, those are very uh, great questions. Now, Dr. Uh, Decipher, going to you a little, um, we talked a lot about about the barriers uh, that you guys found uh, looking through the current literature, what infrastructure do you think we need to improve uh, to, or what infrastructure do we need to build to improve our ability to use deep learning or other advanced analytics such as um, other machine learning techniques? So um, as Dr. Lamb sort of said, I'll, I'll answer this in a, a bit of a roundabout way, but as Dr. Lamb said, the whole idea of deep learning is teaching a computer to think like the human brain. And so what that means is you're using multiple pieces of information, uh, imaging, clinical presentation, symptoms, physical exam, and coming up with a diagnosis and then predicting outcomes, specifically in neurosurgery after a, a surgical procedure. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of variables there and that's where the, the deep learning, uh, name comes from, um, an, an analogy that I like to use that it's not my own, um, is, uh, a Todd teaching a toddler to recognize a dog. Um, at first you show a toddler, a dog and they, it's a yes or no. The toddler says it's a dog or it's not a dog. It's a yes or no. But as the toddler learns uh, more information, they can recognize that a dog has a tail and fur and it might bark. And so all of these pieces of information make the algorithm more complex, but it also allows the toddler to make other inferences. And eventually you could say, well, it's a boxer, it's a beagle, it's a bulldog. Um, and so in order to get to that point in neurosurgery with outcome predictions, not only do we have to have multiple layers of data, it has to all be good data at each level. And so ultimately, I think we have to have um, a almost like a national global database of, of good, consistent data that's as, you know, invariant as we can as we can be with um, in order to, in order to get to a prediction model that will be most accurate for your average neurosurgeon. I'm so glad you used that analogy because I, I think that adds really the strength of deep learning, which is inferences uh, of base truths that we don't necessarily make or we can't quite quantify. 
Uh, and going off that, uh, there are other machine learning techniques such as gradient boosting or random forest that give you exactly what criteria they see is the most important as opposed to deep learning, which is just everything's in the hidden layers and interactions that we don't quite see. Do you think from an individual clinician clinician's standpoint that would prevent people from utilizing it as much because we don't quite we can't quite distinguish this is what's causing improvement. Right. Um, I definitely think that it it makes you a little more uncomfortable with using the data, especially if you don't if you don't trust it or if it's not validated. Um, there's a, we actually have another paper where we reviewed AI in imaging uh, specifically for brain tumors. And in a very simple machine learning model, uh, AI actually beats most human radiologists in diagnosing posterior fossa brain tumors based on imaging alone. Um, that's a very simple algorithm though, right? It's, a, it's usually imaging characteristics equals a certain diagnosis. Um, but as you said, as you get deeper in the, the layers of the neural network, there's lots of unseen thinking that goes on that you can't really monitor as a clinician. So obviously I think initially that gives you some, some level of uh, maybe mistrust of some of the outputs, but as it gets better and as we realize that the data is improving, I think that will naturally become less. Do you think that, you know, when, when these new algorithms come out and there may be competing algorithms as they come out, that we should always try to validate with our own internal metrics prior to utilizing it in clinic, clinical use? Um, I, think the, I think the more validation, the better. Um, initially, you know, we found some of the studies in our review utilized uh, internal validation within the training set, which I don't think is all that useful. Um, some studies did internal validation with a separate data set, which is better. I think obviously the gold standard would be validation with multiple external data sets. Um, that's hard to do, especially since a lot of sites don't share their data and they have multiple differences with what data they're acquiring. But ultimately, yeah, I think eventually we have to validate externally across multiple data sets. And going off that, one of the um, things that was stark to me, and, and I'm sure it makes sense, is these, the final data learning, sorry, deep learning algorithms had a, a wide array of range in terms of the number of patients in them, ranging from single and institutions to large databases. Uh, and obviously large databases in, in some ways are, are better, but they're limited in their variable. Do you think they sh there should be some level of information sharing in an anonymized manner to make this available in the future or make this more powerful? Um, I would say yes. I, I definitely agree with you. It'll 100% make it more powerful. Um, I, I, this is very similar to like the N2QOD or QOD now, where I think Neurosurgery as, as a group, we realize that we, you know, as Dr. Lamb said, we have to own our data uh, because if we don't, other people are going to use it. And, you know, if it's going to determine uh, our practice patterns and maybe even things like reimbursements, then, then we really need to be the stewards of our data. And I would, I would uh, extrapolate that to this as well, especially if we're going to start using artificial intelligence as decision-making tools for whether a patient should have surgery or not. 
Absolutely. I, I think if we can, there's an interesting point you guys make, which is there are different deep learning techniques, which could be parcelated to different institutions, which don't necessarily have to share the data, but in somehow create their own deep learning models and then allow it to come to a higher level after any, everything's been anonymized and create an even more powerful model. I think if we can somehow do that across the country where we're not having to go through IRB or this data sharing methodology, it, it can create some really powerful, because as we know, our field is important to us, but it's not very big. So like to get the data points that we need may take a lot of time. And, and going off that, do you foresee the increasing need for machine learning and AI literacy for the future of neurosurgeon? Um, I do. Um, I think that maybe right now, it's not ready for prime time, but I think, you know, maybe within our careers, uh, we'll start seeing the rollout of, of this sort of technology, specifically as Dr. Lamb said, with imaging, um, we are already using this for stroke recognition. Um, so it, it's already here. Um, we need to make it better, but I think, you know, especially young neurosurgeons should be, should be familiar with at least some of the concepts so that later on, as we roll this out on a more broad spectrum that you're at least, you know, familiar with the, the process and you can interpret data on your own and decide if it's for your practice or not. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I just have a follow-up question for you. Um, and that is when we think about data science literacy, in neurosurgery. Now, I'm going to tip my, hat, my hand a little bit and, and, and let you know that I'm old. So when I was coming through training or even applying into neurosurgery two decades ago, uh, many folks looked at my area of expertise when it came to research, and it was dismissed almost out of hand. Like, what a colossal waste of time. Why would you waste your time doing epidemiology, machine learning, data science? It's not needed in neurosurgery. Now, clearly, that doesn't seem to be an accurate reflection of forecasting of the, of the future. But looking now at where we sit, what do you view as our role as educators in bringing up the next generation of neurosurgeon data scientists? And, and how, how do you see this happening at a practical level? Um, I think the first thing I would say to someone who's interested in this or who wants to incorporate this into their research or their academic career is that collaboration is key. Um, I think that if you want to be a data scientist, uh, you have to have, you know, a large amount of data, but it has to be broad and it has to be of good quality. And the only way that you can really get that in our field is by working with other sites to help decrease that variability. Um, you know, we all know there's, there's variability in practice patterns, between sites and outcomes between sites and diagnostic methods between sites. And so the only way we can really uh, incorporate those variability, incorporate that variability properly, I think is collaboration and working together and sharing data. And I, uh, to follow up on that is, is collaboration across disciplines. So interdisciplinary work, working with um, engineers, computer scientists, immunologists uh, across uh, social science uh, and basic science uh, is really important. And, and some of the inputs that we don't capture now are really the, the 
the socioeconomic or the psychosocial uh, inputs that, that we can see when we're interacting with patients, but we don't necessarily put into the database or, or the, the medical record. So, you know, how do we learn from, from other colleagues, our psychology colleagues, our cognitive developmental neuropsychologists? How do we capture all that as well? Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Smith, as you and I um, uh, were at the um, Data Science Symposium very recently, we saw a lot of uh, great examples of, uh, of leaders collaborating across disciplines with engineers, uh, with others. I mean, uh, so, and then also understanding technology uh, and um, incorporating all of the technology we have now that was not present a decade ago or, or two decades ago, and how can that help push our data collection? Um, just like the work that you do, it, it is really going to help the field evolve at a much faster pace and, and at the pace that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think by example, Sandy, you are hiring people like Michael, who have this research and clinical interest and expertise. And this, I think, is going to be a key way that we begin to propagate data science techniques and skill and knowledge to the next generation. I mean, I think you said it perfectly. Data science is an umbrella term that came into existence within the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's computer science, it's engineering, it's mathematics, it's statistics, it's epidemiology. I mean, it's all of these things together and no one person in my mind can be an expert in all of these areas. So I definitely think that we have to foster multidisciplinary uh, collaboration to get projects actually off the ground. And even more importantly, I think, is to turn neurosurgical departments into data science centers where we across the country willingly share data, even not requiring necessarily a federal mandate, <laughs> but out of sort of the, the knowledge, this is a great thing to do. Now, Michael, I just have one more question for you. Understanding your role there as sort of uh, the director of clinical research and trials, talk to us a little bit about how you see machine learning, deep learning, fitting into the evidence-based medicine landscape. Because historically, just to set you up a little bit, there has been tremendous opposition historically from folks that are trialists, that are frequentists, Fisherian in their approach. How would you explain how this all fits together for, for that audience? Um, so I think first and foremost, um, machine learning, deep learning is a great way to identify uh, areas that would benefit from a randomized control trial. Uh, I think if we can identify practice variations or equipoise in clinical outcomes based on certain procedures that we're performing, that to me is a great opportunity to target a clinical trial. Um, and, and I think that that's an easy, an easy thing we, we can pull out from this data. Um, as far as use in clinical trials, um, that, that's a little, as you said, it's a little, little more difficult topic um, where you know, can a computer or can a algorithm uh, outperform a clinician. Um, I think for things like imaging, we're already seeing that sometimes it can. Um, for deep learning, I think that's where, as we discussed, as the level of complexity uh, 
deep, you know, gets deeper, so to speak, in the neural network, um, that's where uh, the human brain, I think, still wins. And your clinical expertise and your clinical experience ultimately um, trumps trumps an algorithm. Uh, but you know, as, as the as we said, as the data gets better and as computers get better, um, I think we'll start incorporating that into into practice and maybe even into clinical trials. Yeah, I agree. I think you know, if you even set aside sort of Bayesian modifications to traditional RCTs or sort of the end of one trials that are becoming more, um, at least in our minds, popular. I do think that when it comes to surgical trials, and again, this is a very specific topic, but the less control we have over the treatment or the less rigid and defined the treatment is, in other words, red pill versus blue pill, which is incredibly tightly controlled, the less control we have over the treatment the less useful sometimes randomized trials become for us as surgeons, because even you, Michael, doing one case on one day may not be the exact same way you do the same case the following week. So comparing across surgeons, across time, across centers, I think this is where in surgical trials, I think, I think machine learning has great application. You know, Dr. Smith, I was just on a think tank, um, a, an international think tank um, with healthcare economists uh, from the NHS, uh, from Australia and, and uh, the FDA, looking at um, the use of real world data. And, and you know, we haven't used that term here today, but, but really that, that is part of these large data sets that, that are really going to be fair game for machine learning and deep learning. And as we think about how we spend uh, our, our um, investments um, in evaluating uh, healthcare technology and evaluating healthcare and healthcare spending, uh, and also for device development, uh, we are, are looking increasingly on um, how to spend uh, that money and, and is it going to be in clinical trials or is it going to be learning uh, how to use real world data in more effective ways that can really inform what we do? And can some of that start replacing clinical trials or to really motivate clinical trials that, that are going to be more efficiently run in a shorter period of time? Yeah, I think that makes total sense. It seems to me editorializing that historically the RCT has become a one size fits all solution to any question that comes to our minds. And we're realizing now that that's probably not the approach, that RCTs are amazing at answering very specific kinds of questions. And even within RCTs, think about the number of RCTs that are done at Northwestern or here at Harvard, Dana-Farber. Imagine if we had a system for harnessing all of that data for other types of machine learning questions after the trial completes. I mean, this is where I think we're gonna economize and scale and really develop efficiencies around data in my mind. And I think it's a, a you know, as you may have said, the, a great way to look at data that you could never run a clinical trial on, right? There are some, there are some trials you, you would never get through an IRB or, or through an institution and big data sets can help you answer some of those questions without having to run a trial. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So my, my last question for both of you. So let's say you've got Lakash in your office, but when he's an undergraduate 
And, you know, let's say he's coming out with a computer science degree. He's telling you he's interested in neurosurgery. What advice would you give him moving forward as, you know, at the beginning of his career on developing into a full-fledged neurosurgeon data scientist who's going to make real impact? Um, I would say Lakaj, mentorship is really important. Um, it, it, it's hard. It, it's hard to say this is the way it's going to go because life is not completely linear sometimes or all of the time. Uh, but and mentorship is a two-way street. But but keep your eyes open. Uh, and, and keep your eyes open to all of those opportunities. And, and your mentor may not be your direct supervisor or, or the person who's assigned to you in residency. Uh, and it may not be somebody in your field, but, but keep a lookout for uh, multiple mentors to be able to help you grow in the ways that you find most meaningful to you uh, in your um, data science and neurosurgery journey. Um, the other is... Um, uh, rigor, uh, to, to never compromise your values and your assessment uh, of the high bar that you're going to keep for yourself and for the field in terms of uh, data and interpretation and, 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 and understanding that um, uh, you are what you work towards. Uh, and one of my mentors actually told me that it takes at least a decade to build a reputation and it takes 10 minutes to tear that down. So really remember what you're about and keep those standards high. And it's hard to follow that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I would say, I would add, echo what we, Dr. Lamb has said and what we've all said is, is collaboration is so important uh, out, within neurosurgery, but also and maybe even more importantly, with outside of neurosurgery, sometimes the collaborations you form with other researchers uh, can be so fruitful and lead to completely new avenues that you never would have uh, gone down had you not formed that relationship or knocked on a door or had coffee with someone one day to talk about your projects. So, you know, keep an open mind and, and you know, push, push the envelope when it comes to collaborations outside of our field. Absolutely. I think we learn the best from other fields because we're so siloed into our own fields. Now, when we look into other fields, we see what we're missing sometimes. Thank you. I think, I think this is a great way to, to tie up and in, in, in the discussion. Uh, what a great discussion today. Um, love to, to thank you authors for sharing your expertise and knowledge with us um, and our listeners today. We appreciate our listeners, so please be sure to look out for the next month's CNS Journal Club podcast. Thank you.